All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck, Adelics? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. Uh, we've been coming at you since 2009. We've been putting it out twice a week since 2009. A new show every Monday and Thursday since 2009 and holding steady because of you guys. We are one of the OGs of this medium and grateful uh, for your uh, support and enjoyment of the content. Today, I'm going to talk to uh, Radhika Jones. She is the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. Uh, she just celebrated five years at the helm of the magazine. I wanted to talk to her. It became an opportunity. I enjoy that magazine. I think that magazine has a history of sort of engaging public intellectualism and uh, embracing the arts of all kinds and uh, you know, showing diverse voices in all the arts, and in, in um, scholarship and criticism. And I think that's an important publication in light of fascism, white supremacy, and uh, nationalism, and also just straight-up Christian fascism uh, taking root in our country and normalizing. I think it's important that there is some you know, operating, proud, glamorous public voice in the form of a publication that kind of stands in contrast to that as people kind of absorb and uh, allow the worst of humanity to be normalized and have a voice. So that was sort of my incentive on that. But she turns out to be a, a great guest and, and fun to talk to. So that's going to happen for you today. So I haven't eaten meat since the colonoscopy. Some of you know this, that, you know, I checked in with you. I, I had the colonoscopy and I thought like, well, this is it. Blank slate, tabula rosa, asshole. And uh, so I'm just like, I'm putting, I'm only putting good stuff through. So I haven't eaten meat or dairy uh, since Monday for a week. And I'd eaten too much meat. I hit a wall with, and not much processed sugar either, but it's a weird, it's a hard, it's hard to adapt. I thought it would be just smooth. And just a great thing to do. But like, I feel terrible. People bug me for years about, you know, vegetarianism, veganism. They're like, hey, you love animals. You have cats. You know, why do you eat meat? It seems to be contradictory to your, 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 uh, your way of being. And I, and I always thought like, well, I'm not going to eat my cats. But I get it. I understand. And I don't have a pet cow. I don't, I don't have a salmon run in some sort of circular tank around my house that I have named the salmon in, but I get it. And I know it's bad. You know, I've been, I was eating a lot of tomahawk steaks and you know, there, you can't really deny that that's a, a, a big chunk of flesh with bone on it comes from a thing that was alive and enjoying itself. But I have been doing it. I have been not, I have, it's been a week of, and I, I gotta be honest with you, it does not make me feel better. It makes me feel bloated. I feel like a fucking bag of beans because I've eaten like a bag of beans. Gassy, 
gross. I'm, you know, I've not, I'm not used to eating carbs and I'm eating them. I have to start to you know, figure out how to do this if I'm going to do it. Now, this is not some major lifestyle choice. It's just something I needed to do uh, to, uh, all right, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I've got a blood test coming up tomorrow and I wanted to, you know, cheat. I, I didn't want it to represent the way I eat normally. So given the opportunity, given the fact that I could avoid a cleanse because I had the colonoscopy and just start with this uh, vegan business, I did it just to see what my numbers are going to be like when I get the blood test. going to fool them. I'm going to fool them. That's the plan. We'll see how it goes. But I guess I just have to learn how to eat like this and believe that I'm getting the uh, proper amount of protein relative to how much exercise I do and whatnot. But it's just making me feel bloated, and it's a bummer. And people are like, well, just eat fish or something. Like, you know, fish has gotten weird. It's hard to find fish that looks good because the planet is dying. But I'll probably, I'm, I'm not, look, again, I'm not pontificating. I'm not being self-righteous. This is just something I'm trying to do to see how it affects my health and blood levels. But I got to be honest with you, this uh, vegan week, not great, not great. Do not feel better. I have energy-wise, I feel better. But physically, my body, in terms of my body image and how I feel inside my body, not better. But maybe that'll change. Maybe I got to learn to eat. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I can't, I can't recommend it right now. Though I, I do feel, I feel better than you for not eating meat. So I understand that part of it. I do understand that part of it. All right, so listen, listen up. Um, I wanted to tell everybody that I'm going to be in New York promoting, doing some press for the HBO special, which is out on February 11th. I'm excited about it. I'm, I believe I'm doing the uh, Tonight Show. And I'm also doing Mark Marin, me, in conversation with MTV News' Josh Horowitz. This is a 92nd Street Y event, and it's going to be at the Museum of Modern Art. And you can get tickets for it. This is on February 10th uh, at 7.30 p.m. at MoMA. Me and Josh Horowitz in conversation. You can get tickets. There's a link at wtfpod.com slash tour. So come on out and uh, come to the museum, man. I'm, I, I, I don't really know Josh, but uh, he's excited. And, you know, I like to talk. And the picture they used on the website for the 92nd Street Y is a good picture. So I'm on board. So there's that. And also, like, apparently the Academy of Motion Pictures Sciences or whatever the fuck it is, has decided to investigate Andrea Riceboro's grassroots campaign to get her the uh, Oscar nomination because I guess it so threatens their system to where they're completely uh, kind of bought out by corporate interests in the form of studios and millions of dollars put into months and months of advertising campaigns, publicity, uh, you know, screenings by large corporate entertainment entities and Andrea... Uh, was uh, championed by her peers uh, through a grassroots campaign, uh, which was pushed through by a few uh, actors. And uh, the Academy is, uh, well, we got to take a look at this. You know, this is not the way it's supposed to work. Independent artists 
don't deserve the attention of the Academy unless we see how it works exactly. So we're going to look into this. Um, nothing's going to happen because of it, but uh, it was in earnest, the campaign, and it is not undeserving. But I'm glad the Academy, at the behest of special interests and uh, corporate interests and just paranoia about how they look, uh, are doing an investigation. Who gives a fuck? Anyway, speaking of Hollywood, the 29th annual Hollywood issue of Vanity Fair comes out uh, in February. And I talked to the editor and chief of Vanity Fair, uh, Radhika Jones, and you're going to hear it right now. I got to be honest with you. It's weird, but I think about uh, Graydon Carter almost every day. Okay. Uh, because he had this hairline that was ridiculous. And I, I panicked that my hairline is heading that direction. Like where it just sort of goes away on top, but you just it's all long in the back. And he's my only point of reference for that. So it's not in any intellectual way or any judgmental way. It's just like, fuck, I hope my hair isn't doing what Graydon Carter, his hair did. I feel like your hair looks pretty good. Thank God. And podcast listeners don't have the, <laughs> the benefit that I do of seeing your hair Though I think live that, and in person. Well, thank you. The hairline's holding up, but that's just one of my weird paranoias, and he's uh, one of my weird fears, and he's my point of reference. <laughs> <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing in Los Angeles? Anything? I came here to sit in your garage. Is it, really? Yeah. No, come on. I'm doing a couple of other things. Yeah? Like sh schmooze things? Yeah. No, mostly just checking in with um, my, my staff here, yeah. my colleagues. The, yeah. uh, the forces on the ground? Yeah, the bureau. In here in, uh, the here in Los Angeles? Um, the people getting things done. Yeah. Well, what does the, the, the LA arm of uh, Vanity Fair look like now? What do they do out here? They, they do all the things. Yeah. Um, they, we actually... We have um, editors out here. We have writers, correspondents, uh, some people from our creative team, yeah. so designers, sure. um, people like that. It's great because obviously as Vanity Fair, we have a vested interest in yeah, um, the party. A, a footprint in L.A. We, <laughs> yeah. have a, we throw a small party around yeah. the Oscars. Yeah. But, you know, year long, we're, we're covering the scene. Yeah. And, I know. I read um, it. And the last couple yeah. covers have been very Hollywood oriented. Yes. Well, let's go back. So you've you've been the editor for how long? Five years. And it's it's interesting to me because I was trying to uh, you know kind of put stuff together here uh, in terms of you know like the role of the public intellectual in current culture. Yes. And uh, you know what it really means, how insulated is it, how you know what really matters, and to who mm -hmm. uh, seems to be questions that must be asked. I know that. Colbert has you on his show, which I think in his mind is probably a throwback to another time <laughs> where public inter intellectuals were part of pop culture and the discourse. Mm -hmm. They kind of drove it. I'm happy that you frame it that way because my worry is that there are barely any public intellectuals at all, or at least that nobody sees it that way. So I find it sort of encouraging that... That, that I perceive that it? That you perceive it that way, yeah. Well, I, think I that's mean... great. Because I do think, like, I... I I feel very strongly that there is an intellectual underpinning to what 
we do at Vanity Fair, yeah. what other magazine editors do. And the landscape in which you can kind of discuss those ideas has changed dramatically, obviously, since the days of three network news channels and, you know, and three network shows. entertainment channels. Yeah. Yeah. So all that stuff has changed. But I do still think that what, you know, the kind of coverage that we do, whatever platform it is, it's, it's driven by ideas. And they are ideas about our culture and what makes us tick. And but, that's so important. But also, but progressive ideas. Yes. Because in, there, there is a, a sort of, uh, I don't know if it's a resurgence, but uh, maybe an insurgence of uh, fascist intellectuals mm -hmm. and, and uh, you know, a celebration of the sort of uh, grifter intellect mm -hmm. that uh, kind of preys on the worst of mostly men and gears them in a direction towards, uh, you know, really, I mean, straight up fascism mm -hmm. and that's a reality in yes. this country now yes and and there are intellectuals that are uh, given platforms that should remain in academia uh, to argue their dumb points and 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 be used as pawns for progressive ideas right not cultural deciders mm -hmm. so I think that the task is on you <laughs> <laughs> to fight that and I I don't I I mean I'm not talking shit, am I? No, I I mean I I I agree with you, and as I say, it it gives me a lot of energy to hear you talk about it in that way because that that is what we're trying to do. I mean I think that you know we cover a broad range yes. of subjects, and we do crime and scandal and celebrity and and, and politics art. and art and theater and all of it. Yeah, but we try to do so in a way that is ultimately constructive. And entertaining. Or, and entertaining and also illuminating about the way that we live. Mm. Um, and so when you talk about that sort of, hold, you know, holding the torch for progressive ideas, it's less about strictly politically progressive right, ideas, right. but more just about kind of like, well, well how, how do we move forward as That's a culture? It. That's it. Well, I think that it, it seems to me that when, you know, you taking this job uh, sort of um, kind of unhinged the kind of purview, is that the right word, of the magazine, mm -hmm. which was limited, you know, to a, uh, to a very specific thing, to a time when there was three networks, to a time where the, the only, you know, real pop culture driver intellectually were white men mm -hmm. and, and, and uh, the rest of it, even entertainment and even, so, so that's a huge shift in and of itself, right? I think so. And you were aware of that, obviously. Yes, <laughs> I was aware. Well, where, what do you, where do you come from? Uh, how do you mean? Like, where were you brought up? I was born in New York City. Uh, we lived there until I was three. Yeah. And then my family moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. What? Mm-hmm. Why? Why? So... What'd you, what were your folks... What was their racket? My, uh, my, my father was in the music business. I kind of um, knew this. He, <laughs> I'll tell you anyway. Yes. Stop me if I'm... Well, no, I want to hear it. We all want to hear it. He... Grew up in Boston, and he kind of came of age during the folk boom in, yeah. in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He was a um, an early member of the Club 47 uh, and locally renowned for his interpretations of Woody Guthrie songs. Interpretations? Um, Did you have to translate the English to some <laughs> the, the, the sort of working? His versions, okay. let's say. His, uh, so he his, played. He played. He, so he was he there. He played and sang. He was there at the original Club 47. Okay. 
And he has, he still has this beautiful Martin guitar that he played. Um, who, were the, who was the gang around him then? So the gang around him, and he used to organize like the hoot nights. Yeah, you know, the sort of, right. And he, he was always a good organizer. So I will t- I'll tell you, I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. So you know on Bob Dylan's first album when he sings Baby Let Me Follow You Down? Yeah. And at the beginning he says he, Harvard Yard. he, he learned this song from Rick Von Schmidt. Yeah. Rick Von Schmidt, Eric Von Schmidt, was my uncle. He was married to my father's sister. Really? And my father introduced Bob Dylan to Eric Von Schmidt. Uh-huh. So he was making those kinds of connections. So, and then Bob just sort of took uh, Eric's personality and his drive shaft <laughs> and everything that made him himself and added it to the rest of the no. Dylan thing inside. No. Uncle, just, Eric, Uncle Eric remained very much his own man. Okay. Um, it was just and was also like, a visual artist, actually. It's, oh, really? it, was such a per- it was such a cool time in the arts. Yeah. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but it was like people, you know, people were like painting and and singing and composing yeah. and traveling and just they, there was this kind of openness yeah. know, to it. And my father was a part of that. Um, there was nothing in his his father was an electrician. Like, there was nothing in his family that kind of. Well, I mean, him, I would but, imagine his generation was the first generation to sort of do that. Yes, yes, yes. They were all so, electricians or butchers or yeah. plumbers. So my dad, um, he loved music, and he he went to BU. Um, I did too. He played ice hockey at mm-hmm. BU, but he that's a classic uh, uh, folk singer uh, and, pastime yeah, ice the, hockey. The, um, <laughs> <laughs> he was always a very calm skater. Okay. Um, unlike, <laughs> unlike perhaps more successful, ultimately, uh-huh. ice hockey players. Um, he was a very, very, he had a, like a, there was this sort of. Um, grace. Grace, yes, exactly. Anyway, after a while, he he got out of the performing part and yeah. he started doing more production and backstage work. And he, yeah. and he became a road manager and he started road managing jazz musicians. Like um, who? He was Duke Ellington's road manager. Wow, with the whole band? With the whole band. That's a big job. That's a lot of um, oversized luggage, (laughs) which is how you think about it when you're the road manager. It's a lot of tickets. That's a big bus. Yeah. And an artist who doesn't really like to fly. So, you know, lots of challenges there. He took them to the former Soviet Union. Wow. He took them to Burma. Um, he took them to Ethiopia, all over the place. He was Thelonious Monk's road manager. Wow, that's got to be a lot of levels of, a lot of, of levels. management there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you got to get the right teapot and hat going. <laughs> you got to have a lot of patience. You got to have <laughs> yeah, a lot of resilience. Yeah. Um, you have to do some interpreting. Uh-huh. Uh, and so he was a real problem solver and kind of a guide for people who were true genius artists. That's um, amazing. He was Sarah Vaughn's road manager for a little while. Um, he was working for for his whole career for a man called George Ween, who had started the Newport Folk Festival and the Newport Jazz Festival. Was he there at the beginning of that? Uh, my dad started volunteering a few years after the beginning. So he was he was one of the sort of original crew. Um, that was sort of a, a, a decisive showcase. Yes. For... It was a new thing, actually. Mm. Um, it was... A, and one of the things that my dad did that I think is so fascinating is he went with this folklorist, um, a famous folklorist called Ralph Rensler, um, around the country for a couple of years, yeah. like seeking out, you know, indigenous artists, uh-huh. certain types of music. Um, Did he find them? Shape note singers, you oh, know, wow. like yeah. gospel, like yeah. roots gospel music. His yep. his personal favorite type of music was always bluegrass, which I loved. Oh yeah. Um, 
So he, anyway, so he, so you asked how I ended up in Cincinnati. So he was working for George Ween. He was working in the music business. There was stuff going on in Newport and in Europe. Um, of course, Europeans have always been big jazz fans. And, Thank uh, God. Thank the musicians. Like, I don't know if they would have survived without Europe no, and Japan. I, I know. And, and, but in the, uh, and I was born in 1973. And, uh, but, but in the early 70s, the festival in Newport, there were some riots and some disturbances and the town was very, you know, not enthused. Getting and nervous. So they were kind of like, okay, time to go. Yeah. And so my dad's boss started doing a lot of R&B and soul shows in the Midwest. Oh, yeah. So my father became sort of his man in the Midwest. So we moved to Cincinnati. So I, I lived there until I was 12. So I'm kind of from the Midwest. Wow. Uh, spaghetti and chili. We lived, yes, <laughs> Skyland chili. I will die on this hill. And I understand that it's not real chili. I get it. But it is. But it's, its own thing. <laughs> it's its own thing. Yeah. And also, we live three blocks from Graters, the scoop yeah, the, ice the, cream. the best oh, ice cream in the country. It is the best ice cream. Um, when I, I remember when I started dating my husband, I told him, you know, I, this ice cream in Cincinnati is the best ice cream yeah. in the world. And he was like, that's ridiculous. It's just because you grew up there. And right. then he tried it. And yeah. he was like, oh, no, this is actually the best ice it's cream. It's the best. The it's still the best. good. Yeah. So... Uh, and so then he we, was really a road. He was a, a, a manager. Well, he was a yeah, yeah, yeah. Until until he had until he and my mom had three kids under five, and then she was like, maybe you don't need to leave the house for six months at a time. <laughs> With Thelonious maybe that monk. would be helpful yeah. to me. Yeah. And, uh, and so he started. You know, he started doing more American stuff, and, oh, okay. and they, he was managing these R and B and so it was like Cool in the Gang, sponsored by Cool Cigarettes. Oh yeah, you know, it was like that sure. was the era. Uh huh. Um, so my sister and brother and I would just be taken around at these shows. I mean, we would like fall asleep on, you know, big yeah. amp cases yeah. backstage and yeah. stuff. We had a very backstage life growing up, which was really wonderful. That's exciting. That's it was a, such like, a privilege. As a performer, that's really it, that, that moment or, or that time backstage is, is really what show business is all about in a way. It is. It's bizarre. Like every time I'm like even on Colbert, like waiting to go on, you know, the show, like, you know, you see, I've been at NBC when they're walking horses through. Right. And you're like, oh, my God, this yeah. is this is show business. Yes. What happens on stage, that's just the end of it. And it's all, it's very detail-oriented. Yeah. It's very collaborative. It's full of personalities. There's a lot of temperament. You know, you got to be ready for anything to happen. You have to, you can't stand on ceremony. You have to get someone something if they need it. If yes. they need a towel, if yeah. they need, yeah. you know. A yeah. particular kind of, like I have so many arcane details because we used to work, you know, it was like we were all put to work, right? Yeah, you also and, learn about the egos. Well, you learn about the egos, but and and you just you get a sense of people from how yeah. they present, you know, sure. who's how how do how how do their people operate yeah. in advance of them? How, what are they like when you, you know, pick them up from the airport and that kind of thing? And, and a friend and I used to do hospitality, you know, so we knew all the contract writers. So, yeah. like one thing I loved always loved about John Prine, for example. Sweet guy. In addition to his music. Yeah. Is that he always requested the local paper in his rider. Because oh. wherever he was, he kind of wanted to know the news and yeah. kind of get a sense of where, where yeah. you know, of the community. And, I mean, it tells you a lot that there's not a local paper in a lot of places now, Anymore, the way that yeah. there used to be. It's, it was that kind of thing. You know, that you, you came to know, like, yeah. just from being around people like that. That makes so, so much. That's a beautiful detail uh, that I've never heard about Prine. I've interviewed Prine and, you know, and people... Uh, who love him, you know, like Bonnie Raitt and Jason Isbell. Mm -hmm. Like I mean, everybody loves Prime, but that is such a specific and and completely makes sense, right? You right. know what I mean? That, that that's exactly who that guy was. Yeah, 
Yeah. But it's interesting that you're backstage, but you also get to witness, you know, what it takes to manage egos. Like if they yes. don't get, you, you know, their their glass of tonic water or whatever, it could have profound implications on the evening's performance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Well, and you also you also come to appreciate troubleshooting because yeah. sometimes things just happen and like sure. we'd be at Newport, you know, so the Newport festivals came back in the 80s. So yeah. I, I, every summer when I was growing up, we would, um, you know, once I was a teenager, there yeah. were festivals in Newport, we would go and work at the festivals and be there. It was a folk festival and a jazz festival. And you could see, you know, this is before cell phones and stuff, right? Yeah. And, uh, and the festivals are outdoors, so it's rain or shine. So you, you, you learn that like, well, if it rains... It rains. You yeah, get wet. That's you know? right. Yeah. But actually, the festival's more memorable if it sure. rains because, like, yeah. the the stalwarts stay and something magical happens. Right, and um, the, and and there's a, a sort of menace to all the electric equipment. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and and by the way, obviously, if there's lightning, you you, yeah, you yeah. shut it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, you could see the tour buses coming in over the over the Newport Bridge, which is a magnificent bridge. Yeah. Um, and my father would be there with it. You know, someone would be late. The plane would be late coming into the Providence airport or something. Yeah. It's like Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings are on the bus. Yeah. It's the bus coming. Can you see the bus? And he'd be there with his binoculars, like yeah, looking. Yeah. And it's, oh, there's the bus. Yeah, and yeah. they come in and everything. And they're just like, whoop, they're on stage. Right. And yeah. you're like, but well, but if they're late, you, you shuffle people around and you just, you know, yeah. you maneuver and you have to think on your feet and be quick. And I feel like all of that, that was, that was kind of what my father's life was like, was like. Yeah. You know, and, you, and, but on top of that, like whatever you gain from him organizationally and and, and minded uh, in in terms of how how it wired you, was that uh, you know what an amazing expressive uh, world to grow up in. Yes, it, like, because you're you're making ultimately you're committed to art and artistic right. expression, yes. and also my father. This it's one of the most impressive things to me about him. He was he was so committed to discovery. Yeah, he would sit in the car. People would send him demo tapes. He'd sit in the car and he would listen to all the tapes. He was so excited that he might discover someone. Did he? He did. He he was the first person to book Alison Krauss on a oh, major wow. stage when yeah. she was fifteen years old mm. at the Newport Folk Festival. Yeah. Um, and he, he, you know, and people like that. But, but. It's it's so true what you say. I learned from him the first of all the idea that you can you can use art, music in this case, but kind of language also, yeah. sound, expression, performance, yeah, to make a community, yeah, and also the the way you put a festival together is you have headliners uh-huh. and then you have new people, people who are coming up yeah. in the world or people who are your discoveries yeah. and you want to put them in front of an audience. And in, and I also used to work in the box office. So, you know, so, so you'd be so selling tickets coming. and stuff. So you know, so people are calling and they're like, they're, ta- they're asking about the headliners yeah. and they're asking who's on this day and whatever. Yeah. And they're, they're ostensibly, they're coming for the headliners. That's what they're thinking. Yeah. But the thing that would make for a great festival is when they left and they weren't talking about the headliner. They were talking about that artist they'd never heard of before who had a moment on stage and they had this sense of discovery. Yeah. And that is the thing that I realize now in retrospect, like looking at what I get to do every day, that's the thing that really motivates you as an editor is um, it's not just working with people who are great, great photographers, right. great writers, great reporters. We get to do all that at VF, and I'm right. so happy about it. But it's also being able to mix in the people who are new to the game um, and give a new photographer their first shot at a cover or give a writer 
a big story and, you know, but also, help them land it. Right. Right. Exactly. But also this, the subjects. And the subjects. Right. So, so there's discovery on two levels. Mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. that you have these, you know, practitioners of words and pictures. Right. But they're covering things. Right. And you're sort of like, oh, my God, does anyone know about this? Right. Yeah. Right. And I, and I think that my job as editor-in-chief and our job at Vanity Fair in general is to help people be ahead of the curve. You want people to read the magazine or read the website or watch our YouTube videos or whatever it is and say, oh, I hadn't, I hadn't heard of this or I didn't know this was coming. And then when it arrives, they're, they're in the know. Yeah, yeah. And they feel prepared and they feel on top of things. Right. And, and that's like a very intangible yeah. thing that we can give people. Well, what's interesting, and it's all relative to context now because there's no shortage of not knowing shit now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you're dealing with a media landscape that's, it's like daunting. Like, I don't know what's happening. I, you know, there's amazing things happening and people tell me about it. I'm like, is that new? They're like, no, nah, it's like four years old. I'm like, how did I miss that? <laughs> you miss everything. You, so, you can miss a lot of things. So, so, so much of that hinges on you and the context of Vanity Fair. Is that like, there, you know, people can discover things, but that you have to decide what is discoverable and yes. how it fits, you know, the objectives or the, or the ideology of the magazine. Right. Right. So why do you end up here? So you, you grew up in this amazing... What'd your mom do? My mom was... She became sort of part of the family business. Uh, music. Music. But she um, she grew up in India. and part? She grew up in Mumbai. And, and she had moved to Paris uh, in her early 20s because she wanted to study French and she thought she would live in Paris for sure. the rest of her life. And she was there. She started working for Air India, which was a, literally a way to get to Paris. <laughs> to Paris. <And> she <laughs> ended up working there and she worked with VIPs. And this is in the late 60s. So this is the era of like the Beatles obsession with India. Sure, and my yeah. mom was out there. She was extremely beautiful and she was out there showing Jane Fonda how to wear a sari. You know, everyone was yeah. into India oh, at the wow. time. Yeah. So, and she met my father because he was managing a band touring Europe in the summer, and they Which actually bands? met over the counter. Um, I think it was Cannonball Adderley. Okay. I think. Yeah. I would have to check. Yeah. So they, so they, and they were going to live in Paris, and then my dad's boss was like, nope, you're coming back to the States. So my poor mother ended up raising three American children. In Cincinnati. Um, in, Cincinnati. <laughs> in Cincinnati. There goes that Paris dream. <laughs> Welcome to Cincinnati. Uh, I like Cincinnati. I'm not. I look. I've. It's I, an I, interesting town. It has it. You can a, say that about a lot of places. You could, yeah. You could. I, I mean, no. I don't mind Cincinnati. I find that when I travel now for performing, that there's a lot of small cities that are kind of interesting. Uh, that I don't. I like. I like. I went to Pittsburgh, and I'm like, oh my god. Oh, the, does yeah, anyone Pittsburgh. know about Pittsburgh? People do know. Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> so Jerry Springer was the mayor of Cincinnati when I was. Oh wow! Well, that yeah. was exciting. Was, I like, guess colorful times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I've always done okay in Cincinnati. I don't mind it. Columbus, Cleveland. I've been to them all. Something for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so why not? Uh, you didn't want to pursue music. Um. Did you play? Did you? No, do no. I played. I played piano, but only in the in the way that one is forced to sure. learn piano. Yeah. Now I would love to take no- piano lessons. I would love nothing. When it's more. really hard, it's good. Do it yes, now. Yes. It's almost impossible. So, well, my son is eight, and he's taking piano, and I'm kind of envious of his whole piano situation. How's he doing? He's doing great. Good. He's plugging away. Yeah, good. Uh, and so I no, I I we were all all three. My I have an older sister and a younger brother, and we were all fairly. Uh, bookish. Mm-hmm. So we, literature was my great love. 
Yeah. And I was always a big reader. And I just, from when you were a kid? From when I was a kid. I remember my grandmother, my, my mother's mother, because, because it was so, it was more arduous to travel then. So when my relatives would come from India, they would come and stay for a very long time. They would, my grandmother would come yeah. and park for six months at our house. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she. Did she cook well? My, she, yes, but also my mother was a great cook. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. I just always, I'm so, I'm so rude. I always associate, like, my love of Indian food is, like, big. And so I always associate just India to me just means, like, did, did she do the breads really good? She, <laughs> could she make paratha? Yeah. Well, you know, such, uh, my again, I just say my poor mother because yeah. there we were growing up in Cincinnati. And when you're a kid, you just want to fit in. Yeah, yeah. And I went through a phase where I insisted on having bologna sandwiches for lunch yeah, with mayonnaise on sure. white bread. <laughs> yeah. My mother, my poor mother, it was terrible. Yeah. I, all I wanted was Lunchables. Oh Remember those God. things? Yeah, no Paris, uh, no, no Indian food. No, no. Kids, disaster. <laughs> um, but anyway, my grandmother, I, re- I have these distinct memories of being very young, and my grandmother read um, Oliver Twist to yeah. us. And she read us The Merchant of Venice, which is a strange choice for children. The sure. idea of someone claiming a pound of flesh got really locked in my head in wow. this weird yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I, I think I, I'd, I was, my imagination was very activated by those stories yeah. and the act of reading. And my grandmother in India had had been a teacher of literature. So, and and my aunt Helen married to briefly to Eric von Schmidt yeah. was um, was for a long time a professor of literature. So I had I had big readers on both sides of the family yeah. and I kind of absorbed that from them. So I didn't have uh, a clear idea of what I wanted to do with my life. I mean, as I'm saying this, I'm also like, but when I was young, I thought I'd be a doctor. I was kind of a math and science kid. Really? Perhaps I was an all-rounder. Yeah, it seems Maybe like Maybe that's it. where we're headed with this. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't have a clear i didn't have a very set career path sure i just know what i liked to spend my time doing okay and where does that take you 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 uh like in high school i was kind of doing all of the stuff in high school but you could do math and read yes good for you (laughs) (laughs) i had a fantastic math teacher i I hit the wall at algebra i couldn't get past it no i was i like went all the way through physics calculus oh all of it uh i liked it I could only handle geometry because there were pictures. The rest of it was like, no, it's not going to work for me. I'm going to have to get by on my charm somehow. Because I got an English degree, and that was like 60% charm. That book, that's important, though. Sure, absolutely. Uh, but you can't charm yourself through math. No, powers of persuasion are less applicable when you're With trying numbers. to just do math homework. Yes, yeah. I, I can see that. So you end up like, what, did you graduate... And and what was your when you get out of high school? Where are you? What are you thinking? You didn't write, did you? I didn't really write. My sister was a writer, and I had this idea that we had to pick a lane. Okay. <laughs> so, I no, I went to college, got an English degree. Where I went to Harvard. Really? I did. No problem getting in there. Uh, I no, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I, you know, I think you you're like. You went to Harvard when it was still like I have issue with with uh, newer Harvard graduates somehow. Like I, I, it seems to me that you would have went to Harvard with the right uh, frame of mind. 
Like there seems to be, it seems to be sort of a, a, an ambition refining institution at this point. I can see that. Yeah. When I went, it was, um, there were a lot of eclectic people there. Right. Uh, sure. And a lot of, and a, a lot of people who, and I, again, I was a sort of very well-rounded student. Yeah. But when I went to Harvard, I was amazed to meet so many people who were just absolutely expert level at this or that. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was quite exciting, um, but it didn't feel hyper-professionalized or strategic. Right, And right. I think maybe that's it just, what... It's just smart people I, of all kinds. I feel kinds. like that's changed about college in general in a way. Well, certainly about the Ivies because, yeah. you know, and, and the, the, the nature, I think that it seems that... Harvard was always a, a, a place to groom the aristocracy internationally, you know, but it also was, you know, sort of a place where kind of renegade geniuses mm -hmm. could could form. Uh, but it seems now that it, it really is to those who have the forethought, you know, and the intelligence to to guarantee themselves a place in the world uh, to use it that way, especially in entertainment. Right. Well, and that was not me. I didn't. I didn't have a master plan, but I loved my time there, and I ended up doing a lot of theater work. Strangely. Oh yeah, where where at? Just black box theater, like student theater okay. stuff. I, I was not doing, hasty pudding. Or I, anything? No, no, nothing. I was, but I was, I was working. I lived in Adam's house, which at the time was kind of the artsy house, and mm -hmm. I, I fell in with this group of um, really creative anyone we know theater people. Um, actually, I worked on a production of Dreamgirls with China Forbes, who is in the group called Pink Martini. I don't oh, know yeah. if you've ever heard them. Yeah, they're great. So I but I I was doing I was kind of doing dad type stuff. I was like running lights and sound and then I became a producer oh, by yeah. the end of it. And so that was fun. Uh that was my big extracurricular stuff. So but what was your focus? How is it just it's a basic curriculum. So you, <laughs> you study English. I studied English. And then uh, like after you graduate Harvard with your big English degree. Here we go. Life. What happens? <laughs> I moved abroad. I lived abroad for three years. Where? I lived in Taipei. Why'd you I, pick there? I taught English. Um, I had a college boyfriend who had studied Chinese, and so he had moved to Taipei, and I didn't have anything um, pressing to dude. do with my yeah. English yeah. degree. So I was there for about an academic year, and then I and then I moved to Moscow, Russia, and I... Because you broke up with the guy and you decided I need to punish myself? No, there's or? another layer, which is that the guy was Russian. <laughs> 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 yeah. I did. I had studied a little Russian and then I, my Russian got better. When so I you stayed with this guy for a while? Um, on and off. Yeah. And you went to Russia? I, was, I lived in Russia for two What'd years. What did you do there? I worked at a newspaper called the Moscow Times. So you were teaching in, in was, Taipei? Mm -hmm. And then you go, okay, so you get a job in the newspaper. So this is where it starts to come together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I got a job as a copy editor. But what's going on in Russia at the time? How's so that? So it's 1995 in Russia. Yeah. And Boris, so the Soviet Union broke up in 91. Right. And there was a lot of chaos. And uh, Boris Yeltsin was running the country. Mm. But by the time I got there in 95, he was definitely, he was sort of, I mean, he was an alcoholic, and he was kind of yeah, and, and clown. Yeah, a little bit of a clown, and he, he and he kept kind of rotating people through his cabinet. Like he'd yeah. have a, a protege or, or a, you know, a sort of right. this guy's going to be the guy after me. And yeah, he wasn't that guy, and you know, and there were also wars going on between Russia and Chechnya. Um, so there was a lot of tension, and it was deeply chaotic, and actually reminds me a little bit of the period that we're in now, because there was also just economically there was a lot of 
there, there was a tremendous amount of change happening because once the Soviet Union broke up, the yeah. whole underpinning of the economy changed. It wasn't a state-run economy anymore in the right. way that it had been. Was part of the reason, part of the reason that the Moscow Times existed is that it was started in 1992 by a couple of Dutch guys because, because suddenly you needed to have business reporting on in Russia, and before that, the state reported on business. The state was like, the economy's great. Yeah. It's our five-year plan. So, yeah. so there was a lot of appetite for people to read the news, specifically to read business news, to read it in English, to learn English, to travel, to be exposed to different kinds of things. And so, so it was a very, very eventful time in Russia. And, uh, and in a way, it was the beginning of where Russia is now because there, was, there were all these people grabbing for power, yeah. like grabbing for a share of the oil and gas market and the nickel market and all these places. Uh, so that's when... So that, it's kind of like, you, you can, if you look back now, yeah. you can see the roots of this oligarchical Ar- the system. The oligarchy, yeah. And then Yeltsin appoints Putin as his successor in the end. Um, I mean, I was gone by then. And but, he wrangles the oligarchs. Yeah, yeah. So it all started then. So when I was there, though, there was a still... There was still a... They had been through some hyperinflation. They had gotten a lot of uh, bad advice about privatizing industries. So it wasn't like there was blanket optimism. Yeah. But there was still some energy. People were opening restaurants. What was the People art scene were, like? The art scene was really vibrant. I mean, Russians um, historically have always been deeply literate and and cultured people. And sure. It, and I mean, it was they, also, the, the, I mean, one thing that I loved about yeah. it was that it was extremely affordable. Like, you could go to the opera and sit in a great seat for something like, ten, you know, the $10. And and right. so you did it because it was it was there for you to experience. Well, if you think and, about the, the root of sort of modernist theater, acting, uh, film, mm-hmm. it's all Russian. It all became, yeah. it all started there. Yeah. I mean, wasn't Eisenstein Russian? The language mm-hmm. of film mm-hmm. was generated in Russia. The method, the method is from yeah. uh, Russia. And yeah. uh, and a lot of great literature. Sure. And so it was It was very vibrant. Uh, and and there also there were some terrific films coming out of Russia at that time. Like so really been. grappling with the past. And um, it, was, it was an interesting time to be so there. So that's inspiring. Mm-hmm. So was that, do you think that broadened your mind around... I mean, coming from music or coming from where you were and then being at Harvard and, and seeing how a newspaper worked, but also kind of taking in, taking in like the power of creativity happening in a, in a country that was just starting to wrangle with that type of independent thought must have been like mind blowing. It was, I mean, there was this long history of the arts. Think about the Bolshoi Ballet, for yeah. example. And yeah. So it, it wasn't like that commitment to the arts was new but it, it but it was for me to experience it that way it, it was a sort of a change in my perspective oh. i think just that it was just that it was really part of the fabric of life i mean partly it was also just the age that i was like suddenly i'm an independent person i'm away from my family you know i was sort of like able to experience the world uh-huh. without filters and it, it i think about it a lot vis-a-vis people who are young today, because in the mid-90s, I think e- email sort of started when I was at Harvard, like yeah. in the early 90s, if yeah. we were very, you know, maybe certain types of people had email addresses, yeah. but it wasn't a regular way of sure. communication. I think that I first got an email address in Russia, mostly to communicate with my mother, but 
day to day, nobody knew I was doing what I was doing. And it was a very formative time for me, I think partly because I was in Russia and it was a very stimulating place to be, but also because I was truly making my own way. Yeah. And I think about it in contrast to today, because these days, if you go somewhere, well, you have your phone, you're still in touch with your friends from high school. You can FaceTime people. They can see where you yeah. are. They can yeah. see. And there are wonderful, well, there are wonderful <laughs> things about that, but I kind of think it's, it. I, I kind of, I'm very grateful that I had this, this chance to be away because it just... Real freedom. Oriented my thinking differently. Yeah. So I got, so I was immersed in that world, which was great. But then the other thing I think that came out of there for me that applies to what I do now is that I was working at a newspaper. And newspapers, they're like shows or whatever. They're deeply Every communal. Day. Every day you show up, you have a part, you know, you're a part of this yeah. process. Yeah. There's a deadline. We had to get the paper done by midnight. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you go home and you're kind of wired and you have to kind of like, come yeah. down from it, you know, and then yeah. you start it all over the next day and news happens and it's exciting. And, yeah. uh, and so I started to experience the adrenaline rush that you get from being part of something like that. Yeah. I, I think it's very interesting what you said about the arts being dug into Russian culture, even when Russian culture was totally managed, mm -hmm. right? Because it, and it becomes essential, like, you know, kind of countrywide. Yes which we don't have here. No, well, we have a very different system. Right, but it's but, interesting, though, because, like, yeah. that, you know, people knew about it. They, it was a resource. Mm -hmm. The arts were a resource. Yes. And, and, you know, here we are with all this freedom or however we're designed here, and that really isn't looked at the same way well, as a necessity. No, and in fact, it's it's I'm an amateur on this subject, but, uh -huh. but it is a little bit of a, um, it's, it's a, it's an area of interest for me. I think it's fascinating that support of the arts in America historically yeah. is kind of tied up with the age of the robber barons. Like, yeah, sure, you the have, Carnegies. You know, yeah, the Carnegies, the Rockefellers. Yep. You, you, what, what we have in America is a system that relies on philanthropy and relies on people on caring about the arts. Oligarchs that want to give money. Kind of, yes. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's like shrouded in the, the beauty of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and all the libraries across the country. And so we forget that that's where it came from. But if Andrew Carnegie had been a different kind of, if he had just decided to do something different with his money, if Rockefeller had. Yeah. We wouldn't have these institutions. I'm, and and you have to keep cultivating in new generations the notion that this is a duty and responsibility if you have a certain amount of money or prestige or power in America. That's the trick, you huh? You have to do it. And that is the trick. And I don't think it's obvious to everybody. It's not. It's obvious to like a, 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 a small group of people. Right. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's disheartening. I, mean, I was just in, uh, where was I, in, like Houston. That place is just alive with art. I don't know, like there was some oil money mm -hmm. somebody had, and mm -hmm. there's great museums. It's, it's astounding yeah. in the middle of Texas. But I was also in, you know, when I did Pittsburgh, I played at the Carnegie Library, right. which is up on the hill. And it's this weird place, but apparently he built theaters everywhere. Mm -hmm. and, and they had, like, gyms and pools and lockers for the people that worked in the industry and in steel. Yeah. Or you think about the WPA, and you you think about people. What an amazing thing! What an amazing thing! All the all those great uh, frescoes and those sculptures. Murals. Yeah, they, man. they're great ones at the Cincinnati airport. Really? Yeah, I love that stuff. Yeah, but like alongside of that, it, like what stuck in my mind before this conversation was, you know, I dated a painter for years, and when I really saw how the art world worked at that level of fine art, mm -hmm. it's disgusting. 
and you know it it has something to do with what you're talking about but it's a little lower level i mean people that have the kind of money to start foundations and make museums you know that's that's that that i can sort of see right. and accept and that's the way what we're talking about that that needs to be maintained but what artists who are weirdos you know who live this you know alternate lifestyle because they have no choice because they've been chosen by a muse have to pander to arms dealers to sell their fucking paintings it's wild it's that's, a wild that's a diplomatic it, word but okay also, <laughs> i'm a middle child mark uh, okay <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. And you also are the editor of Vanity Fair and you can't start throwing the arts under the bus in any way. But but yeah. It it feels unrooted in reality. Well, yeah, because what like what is. does it mean then? Yeah. Like, you know, when like there's something you know, I guess I'm a romantic uh when it comes to thinking about that stuff before I met her. Mm -hmm. But ultimately the artist is just doing the art for themselves. It's got no higher social purpose other than they have to express themselves. And then to get the notoriety or the level of success or exposure that they need, they have to play this game and be song and dance people, or at least of the right sort of moment to to get pushed into the ether. Although I think it can have a higher social purpose. I, I, okay, I hope that's true, and I believe it is. You would have to believe that to, to sort of believe what you, what you set out to do. Yes, yes. I am an optimist in that way. I don't think all of it has to, but I, think, I do think there are, currents, there are currents that sometimes we don't even recognize that can unite a moment. That's, but that's the most important thing that you're doing. And sometimes people aren't even conscious of. Well, they don't know. They do novelist artists. I mean, the la the last thing you want to do is ask a novelist what their what their work means. But also, it's not their job to say it. But but it's like, but it can have meaning. Of course, people can. You know, it it can be it can be sort of a force in a but, different way. But I think what you're doing at you know in the job and how this job has evolved and and why you in particular are important is that is that what you're saying is true but what has not existed before is inclusion mm -hmm. right so there are entire perspectives of of different types of people marginalized people different ethnic groups that had no representation you know in this culture for for years and now all of a sudden just the fact that they are represented uh is mind-blowing and and that those stories and that expression and the history of that becomes like this entire whole new uh, cultural history uh, that's been just obfuscated or or shut out. Yeah, just overlooked. I mean, it's but it's overlooked always, with malice. With yes, or 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 yes, out of out of negligence right. that is malevolent at worst. Right. Maybe just unknowing at. At best. I mean, I, but I think of my father who's taking major black artists around the world, you know. Sure. But even uh, that jazz, it's still like it's one of those things where, you know, you gotta, you've got to have, you've got to adapt your, you've got to be a person that digs it. Yes. Yes. You know, you can, you're not yeah. going to make a jazz lover out of somebody who doesn't get it. Yeah, it's true. And it's a hell of a rabbit hole. It's so interesting how jazz became something that was esoteric. That you that you had to kind of understand um, on an intellectual level later in the fifties. Late in the fifth, right? With with it was popular, with bebop because you right? couldn't dance to it. You had to you had to absorb it in yeah, a different some, way, right? Because some radical artists decide yeah. we've had enough but, of this big band shit. But in a in a way, it's like the history of the novel, which is sort of my hobby horse from graduate school. Is is like it started out as this, uh, you know, became this sort of mass genre, and only with 
modernism, Virginia Woolf, yeah. James Joyce, people like that, does it become something that is difficult, yeah. that is purposefully difficult? I know. And shuts you out. I know. Well, yeah. I, well, what do you make of that? Uh, I As a scholar. Can I be a diplomat again? Sure. <laughs> no, I love those novels. I love being challenged as a reader, but also I think it's fascinating. It's a fascinating twist. It's a fascinating reaction to the novel as... Uh, entertainment. As entertainment and as something that, you know, the novel came of age also with a boom in mass literacy. I'm talking mm-hmm. about the English novel. Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden you had all these people who could read. Yeah. And whenever a lot of pe- a mass of people get a lot of power suddenly or get have something available to them, that the people at the top start to panic. The elite, the gate, because they're like, well, what, all these people are going to read. What if they read the wrong thing? Yeah. Or Mark, what if yeah. they listen to the wrong podcast? Right. They're going to get some bad ideas. Yeah. Maybe they'll get some ideas about overthrowing us. Right. That's that would not be good for us. Yeah. So so there start to be, there starts to be a lot of anxiety about policing what people read and things like that. And so there's tension around reading. All of a sudden, there's tension around the novel. What year are we talking? I'm talking about the kind of Victorian novel, mm. like. In the the middle to late nineteenth right. century, we can't have them too educated. We 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 just we don't want people to be getting bad ideas from, right. from novels. Okay, uh, which is why if which is why if you think of all the novels at the time in which a woman commits adultery, guess what happens to her at the end of the book? Death. Yeah, she cannot survive. Yeah, because that would be bad. Right. Um, that would be a bad lesson. Um, imagine if that were still the case. You know, yeah. well, there's uh, there's a contingent of people in this they're trying to make it the case right well, well that which is interesting so so when the novel becomes when when novelists start to say well actually we're gonna you know we're gonna start to change things up a little bit it's not like people weren't still writing novels that were very accessible of course yeah. they were of course they still are yeah but it's like an assertion that this form can also be uh Challenging and yeah. revolutionary, yeah. yes. That it, that you can change the parameters of yeah, it. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Or, or that poetry doesn't have to rhyme. I mean, I'm just... Right, and also like, you, you can be... There, there's a level of cleverness that has to be applied to outsmart. Mm-hmm. And you have to learn how to read it. Yes. There's a bar. Mm. You have to be, you have to learn how to read it. Yeah. Uh, and just the, the, and whether they were articulating that directly or just kind of enacting it in the kind uh. of books that they wrote, I just think it's... Sometimes it's just a perception in art, but I think there are a lot of people who th- who think that they have to be taught how to look at a painting. Of course, um, it, it it depends how it deep can, you want to go, and it can it can keep people away because they feel like they're not getting it, or they don't have the context, or they don't, and so I th- I or they just think it's bullshit, or they think it's bullshit. Yeah. Right, it's not for me. It's not my cup of tea, well, well, or are... it doesn't mean anything anyway. And and all of those, all of those reactions. It's not that they're not valid. I'm just saying this is a sort of area of interest for me in general. How I think about the world to, and to, culture. To bridge like, that. To kind of, yeah, to knock down, knock that down a little bit. Well, that's interesting because the evolution. What you're saying is that, you know, with modernism comes this. Uh, it, it 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 creates a wall. Mm-hmm. Not not unlike philosophy. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're not going to just jump into Kant yeah. and get it. Right. You know, you've got to be part of this unfolding, this right. history, this language. Right. So now they start to codify, uh, you know, music, literature, film even. Mm-hmm. And, and in its nature, 
it's exclusionary yeah. because it's designed as such. Right, right. So now, and that's where you get a sort of kind of a hostile working class reaction. Yeah. Where it's sort of like it's all bullshit. Right. And, and when you really break that down, they're not wrong. So, but you have to find the redeeming quality yeah. of this stuff and make it tangible. Yeah. And, and you also, I think, it also goes the other way in a way that I think is applicable to Vanity Fair, which is that there's, there are, there are art forms or forms of expression yeah. that have more meaning than maybe we think. And so take the example of Vanity Fair, which is a magazine that yeah. usually has a celebrity on the cover. Yeah. Now, there's a certain type of person who will be like, well, that's not interesting to me. I'm not interested in yeah. celebrity. Right. I think there's a lot that's interesting about celebrity. Believe me, it's my, it's what I do. <laughs> it's yeah. what you do. So I know. <laughs> yeah. So I'm preaching to the choir here. Okay, yeah. But, you know, how do you, how do you present those kind of people and and make sure that you're expressing the story of them, of their personality, of their particular type of power in a way that gets at the kind of ideas that that underpin it. I think that that's the challenge of our culture right, right now. now. I don't I don't ever want to dismiss our culture as shallow. I feel like there's always some idea to be had. That's me being a kind of academic i guess but i but i think it's more interesting to look at the world that way well no i, I think i i absolutely do you know but i i, I i've grown to to see both sides of this thing mm-hmm. but like before we we get into that because i think that the the struggle is is, is more um um uh, desperate for our side mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in that my fear is that you, you know, all these things the vulnerability of expression and 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 the willingness to understand are 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 at odds in, in a way that there yes. there's a, a fear uh, of people to um, to sort of follow those creative muses that would create the type of stuff that you know is so enriching mm-hmm. in, in a in a in a broad way. But there's also a, a, an aggressive resistance to it that right. just thinks it's useless, right? And and want to homogenize culture into something you know. Yeah. Russian. Yeah. Well, there, it's as you say this, I'm thinking about the fact that there's, we have all of these paradoxes in our general culture right now. I mean, there are people who have been elected to government yeah. who resist the idea of governing. They don't want to govern. What is that about? I don't know what happens with that. I guess <laughs> we're going to find out. This is the yes. Congress that'll tell us. Yes, I guess. I guess <laughs> we're about I to figure so. that. We're about to, we're about to learn what a bunch of showboating weirdos. Right. Who don't even know the job right, are going right. to do with the job, right? Um, but but I, I I mean I like this the the idea of this because I I think about it all the time mm-hmm. that you know the difference between mass appeal of 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 the type of art that everyone can enjoy, which is not without incredible merit, of course. Uh, you know, versus these sort of more nuanced and, and smaller things, right. these fragile things, these these black box theater business, this, yeah. this evolution of people finding their way in the arts. You know, where does that all stand? How do you nourish? Yeah. The, how do you nurture that stuff? I feel like this is the Oscar race conversation every year now. <laughs> yeah. Is it? <laughs> Isn't it? Kind of. Well, I there's I this big, this, this, you know, the very first time I came to Los Angeles yeah. was to interview Catherine Bigelow. I, I never came to LA as a child my whole you know my you start, family you were a reporter 
I was at the at the time at this time I was um, the arts editor at Time Magazine, overseeing coverage of movies, music, books, TV, and it was the year that The Hurt Locker was up against Avatar. Yeah classic David and Goliath struggle yeah. for the Oscar. And yeah. I had met Catherine because our film critic at the time, Richard Corliss, was one of the first people to review The Hurt Locker. It had premiered, I think, at the Venice Film Festival like a full year before, but it hadn't been distributed. And he, I remember he called it a near-perfect war film. And, uh, and Catherine had so appreciated that review and that support, uh, and he introduced us at some event. And anyway, I ended up profiling her for the magazine so I came out it was the first time I ever came to LA yeah because my whole family my father's family was mostly on the east coast my my mother's family was mostly in India or yeah. other places we were when we traveled it was mostly east coast or Europe so I remember leaving New York uh, right before a big snowstorm and I got on the plane and I arrived in Los Angeles and sunny and I had a cappuccino by the pool and I was like <laughs> yeah. oh I get this now <laughs> yeah, yeah. this is it <laughs> I get this yeah it was great but but it was the Hurt Locker and Avatar yeah yeah it was right, like right, the, right this sort of gem of a d film around a difficult subject uh a, a deeply political subject yeah and then it was Avatar you know pure entertainment Pure entertainment, but also t cutting edge technology at the time, and um, yeah. and box office. Yeah, uh, and I feel like there's a version of that that happens a lot. Of course, and well, it, and, it, and those are the two poles. Of that, Hollywood. Those, that those are the two poles of 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 yeah of yes. this, but not so much of you know painting or theater or or books really. I would say books, yes. Yeah, I know, but books is sort of known. Like, you know, these books sell. Like, you know, to get there's people There's James to Patterson, read. and then there's... Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, I'm best friends with Sam Lipsight. I know the trip. Right. You, you know what I mean? It, it's just, it's a it's a rough road mm -hmm. to be a, a brilliant, you know, satirist mm. or, or, or writer. So practically nobody can do it. Right. But, I mean, and, but and, not and, that they're not and, capable, but they, they it's can hard to make get people it work. to give a shit. It's hard to get, yes. And the numbers are so small, too. It's terrible. Yeah. It's like it's like it's heartbreaking, but it, it's it, but it's happening with now because of the advent of technology that anyone can have. Like the number of movies that are re heart wrenching and deep and and interesting, they just like you, you don't even know where they are. Yes, they they. It, but that's a whole other issue. Like so, because then you know, when we talk about Oscars, you know, their relevancy becomes tr difficult for me to assess at this point. Yeah. Uh, but but you're coming from a. You know, a, a history of a magazine that has been a tremendous Hollywood ass kisser and kingmaker. So, like, how did you, you know, what were some of the decisions you made around, you know, um, around the, the way that, that the old Vanity Fair used to lionize people in power mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and really be, you know, Hollywood suck ups. So how, how did, have you shifted the perception or, or of the magazine and, and, and the point of view of the magazine? Well, first of all. I would say that the phenomenon that you're talking about, that sense of being overwhelmed by yeah. the amount of cultural production that yes. exists, to me, is a is part of the reason for being for places like Vanity Fair because there is yeah. uh, there is still a function to be had. I feel like people overuse the word curate, but you know we yeah, we are sure we are trying to winnow 
things out, not in a kind of classist or exclusionary way, but more just to guide and to be tastemakers because we it's what we spend our time doing. We're devoted to it. Curation is yes. all of it now. It, it's, it is right. the only weapon against algorithm. Right, right. Human curation. Yes. yes, yes. So I have a sense of purpose around that, and the, and I have a sense of purpose around the magazine as a tastemaker. So, so when I was first talking to Connie and asked about the job, I was working at the New York Times. And Where? What department? I was in the books department. Uh, um, are you so friends I with had, Lisa Lucas? I had gone back to my roots. I yeah. love Lisa Lucas. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's great. And so I was at the Times, yeah. and they published the Harvey Weinstein story yeah. when I was there. So the Me Too movement starts getting rolling, and I'm having these conversations about Vanity Fair, and I'm kind of thinking about the magazine and everything. And it just started to feel to me like there's a... And this predates Vanity Fair, the whole founding of Hollywood. It's, there's been sure. a lot of deeply systemic sexism. And dirty, dirty place. Violence against yes. women and just and, and also just a lot of power concentrated in the hands of very few people who then exercise a lot of leverage. The studio system. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. And it just felt like it felt like Vanity Fair we're we're good at nostalgia. We do nostalgia. Yeah. But I started to think about it in terms of, well, your nostalgia though has to be updated with the times. Like you can still look back, but are you what time are you looking back to? Yeah. And it felt to me as the Me Too movement is unspooling un and more and more people are coming out and talking about what happened to yeah. them, Harvey, whatever, uh, that to be nostalgic for some golden age of Hollywood was to really overlook a lot of the very, very bad things that happened at that time. Yeah. Not that there weren't good things too, but so it just heightened my sense of purpose around modernizing the magazine and even modernizing the nostalgia in a way. Like, like without being revisionist. No, without being revisionist, but uh, framing it right. Yeah, and also acknowledging that as generations pass, you know, the the things in our living memory change. So one of the first, the very very first public tragedy that I remember. Well, now I can't remember which happened first, so I'm undercutting my own point here. But Reagan was shot when yeah. I was young, and John Lennon was killed, and those were two of the those are two of the things that I. Yeah. Remember. Yeah. And and I remember the Challenger, the shuttle explosion. Yep. That was a big, as a kid, that was a yeah. big deal. Uh, and you, then you grow older and you start to realize, it's very obvious, but you start to realize that, oh, other people who are younger than me, they don't have these shared memories. They have different shared memories. Oh, yeah. And you start to realize that it becomes important as a cultural institution to tell some of those stories because they do, you you know, you need to get them back into the public consciousness because they can disappear. Sure. So all, all of this, to my point about nostalgia, it was like, you know, in a way, the operative nostalgia when I took the job felt like it was more about the 80s and 90s. And you could see it in the culture. You had shows like The Americans, which I loved. You had the HBO series on Chernobyl, uh -huh, which good. was amazing. It was, yeah. Um, and... I realize, you know, I read about Chernobyl in Time magazine when I was a kid in my yeah. current events class. But yeah. people who are twenty, they don't. It, yeah. it kind of went away. Yeah. Uh, you move on to the next tragedy, right? You move sure. on to the next. Disaster. I guess so, but yeah, but now and because of the pace of things, it could be day to day. It, yeah. It's day to day. So yeah. that's what's super interesting. So, so we have at our disposal a website which is, we can publish and social sure. media feeds we can publish. Yeah. By the minute. Yeah. But we also have a, a long lead magazine 
So which means that four to six months. Well, it's we're planning. You know, we're planning ahead. Depending on the degree of difficulty, are you executing an enormous photo shoot, or right. what is it, or reporting a story? Yeah. Uh, and in a way, the pace of the news cycle makes that gives you an advantage because you can you can follow the news day to day, but you can also take six months and lean back and report out a story, and by the time we come out with it as a long-form piece online and in print, half the time these stories are sort of, like, they've fallen by the wayside, but people are eager to get a holistic sense of what happened. I'm right. thinking about, for example, the um, the college admissions scandal, yeah. you know, the varsity yeah. blues thing. Like, when it happened, it was just all over the place. And then, some, and then the next thing happened, and particularly during the Trump presidency, yeah. it was like, the next thing happens and you're, you've it's moved all on. So... So we're able to do we're able to operate on both of those levels and it's super helpful. But so when I came to the job, I just I felt like it was going to be important for me to be in the present because things were changing rapidly and you have to acknowledge that and represent it. Yep. But also it felt to me that the job of a magazine is more to look forward than to look back. And then nostalgia is fun, but it's not it, yeah, it, it, it needs, so. but it needs to speak to the moment. It can't just be about the past. It has to be about the present too. Well, that's that's well, when it makes sense. Well, that's the trickiest part about you know all the horror is that you know how do you separate the horror from the the things that were actually beneficial, right? You, right. you know that becomes the story. Mm-hmm. You know, can you can you carry both? Yeah, uh, in your nostalgia, right? And also, you know, in terms of honoring the memories of of people of our generation or the generation ahead of us or even the one before. I mean, it's tricky in the sense that, you you know, we, we now have to make sure that people know the Holocaust was real. Yeah. yeah. So that, that still dealing with that whole other side of, of truly much more organized fascistic cultural mm-hmm. thinking. Yeah. Because, right, because what happens in the present actually changes the past too, changes our perception of the past. I know. Yeah. And 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 it, it drops off. Yeah. Because there's so much. Right. You know, that if there if the singularity has happened, it's a daily brainwashing yes. just because we can't we don't have the capacity to carry it all. Yeah. But you have to focus. So So and I have to think I try to think in the moment, but also I think we all of us at VF we're trying to think about, well, twenty Five years from now, 50 years from now, if people look back at the magazine as an artifact, let's oh, say, yeah. and they look at the covers and they look at the stories, yeah. they're going to be like, oh, that, yeah, that, that was what that time was like. Yeah. In the way that when you look back at Tina Brown's Vanity Fair in the 80s, you're like, oh, yeah, the 80s. It was all like... Blow know, and dance. Yeah. And like vulgar Money. and glitzy and Donald Trump. Yeah. And it, it becomes indicative of your era. And I feel like we're talking to ourselves in the present, but we also need to put a stake in the ground about kind of what is this moment? What are we living through? Yeah. And acknowledge that, you know, we are in, we are unlike those other times, I think that there are, you know, bubbles. There Mm -hmm. weren't bubbles then really. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, some, it seems that some, uh, you know, some things were insulated, right. but there really wasn't the fact of people living in organized propagandistic realities yeah. Yeah. that, you know, that they never meet. Yeah. So, so, but you have to take that in as part of the culture we live in. Right. And, and 
we also want to represent that the culture is not monolithic anymore. So we have the opportunity to put different kinds of people on our magazine covers if we want. Yeah. Uh, And show a culture. AOC was on the cover. AOC has been on our cover. Um, And you didn't like Ta-Nehisi edit one? Ta-Nehisi was a um, special guest editor. He's great. He was a brilliant editor. He, I knew he was a brilliant writer and thinker. Um, well, he's great because, like, you know, his he his, he's broad. Like, yes. you know, people sort of hang this uh, this idea that he has to be the spokesperson of of Black America, but like, he likes comic books. He wants well, to write comic books. Yes, and and it was for that reason really fun talking to him about the visuals of magazine. Yeah, making. yeah, oh, yeah, it was that, great fun. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so we can we can extend invitations to people like that. I asked Gloria Steinem to help us out with our November issue this year because I was so devastated by the Dobbs decision. Yeah. And I just wanted to talk to Gloria Steinem about things and she very kindly signed on and we talked a little bit about, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, she knows how to wield this kind of fight. So it's at the magazine, we have this perch. We can we can bring people into the community to help us with our storytelling. And also we can be inclusive about the people we represent in the magazine. And that feels yeah. like progress to me. Totally. And it feels appropriate. And yeah. it's something that I didn't have growing up. So I feel it personally. Right. but And also... We live in a country where there's active forces trying to sort of shamelessly deny that history. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's like I, I keep coming back to that, but I have to imagine that it's, it's you know, in all this kind of optimistic talk, there is the, the idea that it has to be a, a bulwark against American fascism as it stands now. Yes, and and I and <laughs> I don't mean to make it too I, heavy. No, no, not at all. I was just going to say I don't want you to think that I'm a naive optimist. We have, we did a really we we ran a piece that uh, I was very proud of last year about the new right. Yeah, the kind of pseudo intellectual movement. Right. Uh, by oh yeah, I read that. Yeah, by James Pogue. Yeah, and, yeah, and uh, and a lot of people read it, and and I think it opened. Woke them up. Woke people up to the understanding, which, again, it's not that people were unaware, but just because Trump is out of office doesn't mean that— Well, yeah, because— Doesn't mean that these currents aren't still activated and even growing. Organized, organized. And I think it's really, really important for us to stay on that beat, and you're going to keep seeing— You're going to keep seeing us covering that story um, in various forms over the course of this year and the next, because it's—it does not— get any less important and because they want to hijack culture that's they, part of it well yeah but that mm-hmm. i mean but that's well, sort it connects of the wheelhouse with what we do yes exactly. yes yeah. it's not it is it's not it's not unconnected yeah. for sure right right and i think yes i think we we don't want to be pie in the sky about yeah, yeah. about Good. well no i don't I think i mean you i are, think yeah. that the the thing about vanity fair the whole it's in the title it's like there there you have to poke yes at at ideas and at people, you have to provoke them a little bit. Yeah. Uh, or you're not doing your job. Yeah, I think it's great. You feel good about it? I do. I do. It's been five years. I feel settled. <laughs> and the magazine's doing well? Yes. And and print is, is selling? Uh, print print is doing weirdly well. Well, that's because it's pretty. It is. It's like, I, you it's know. nice I, to have. Like when we started talking about having you as a guest, I didn't know that, like I just started getting Vanity Fair. I'm like, why is this happening? 
And I think it was because, you know, I got put on a list or something, but I'm like, I love Vanity Fair. I'm Good. glad it's and Cream Magazine started doing quarterly uh, issues again. I'm so thrilled about it. Yeah, I think that people, I think that there's so much that is not tactile in our world these days. It's exciting to have and, it again. And yeah. look, I read plenty of stuff on my phone and I listen to podcasts sure. and I do all the things yeah. that one does. Yeah. Uh, get sucked into TikTok dances. Sure. But uh, <laughs> yeah. not personally, I don't yeah. do the dances. But yeah. um, but I I think it is nice to sit sometimes with, a magazine or with a I, I mostly read when I read books I mostly read in print me too because I just enjoy I can't it. read on the turning a page and I and but I, the images look a certain way you know one thing I like to say it's a little hokey but everyone talks about their devices and new technology and this and that well print is also a technology sure it was, it was a, a powerful it was a, one it was an extremely revolutionary <laughs> technology <laughs> for sure yeah and it has been incredibly resilient and I think it's worth putting it in that context for people. You know, print sure. is, when we think about stories now, one of the things that's really exciting to me is we now have a studio outfit, BF Studios. Because as you can imagine, a lot of the stories that we do, the, especially the scandal and the true crime stuff, there's a lot of appetite for those stories to become uh, yeah. limited series, documentaries, yeah. scripted series, etc. And so we now have an arm where we can really move those stories into that pipeline. It's very exciting. We have some projects that are coming out this year that will have VF, be our first official VF Studios projects. Oh, really? Yeah. As and TV shows? As TV shows. Oh, good. And, um, and so we're always, these days, one of the great advantages of running a magazine in this day and age is that you have all of these things at your disposal. So when we think about stories... Often we're thinking, we're, we're thinking about the idea, but we're not thinking about it as a print story per se. We're thinking about, well, where where is this going to land best? Yeah, is this a eight episode podcast? Yeah. Is it a series on Instagram? Oh, yeah, is right. it you know? Is it a photo essay? Mm -hmm. Is it a video? Is it a series? And is you have it, all this. Is it, is it a print? Issue that becomes a podcast that becomes a series, right. which is which is a can it chain grow that out of happen. that? Yeah, and so we get a lot of bites at the apple, and we're also able to take different kinds of risks because we have grown our audience. Uh, we have, you know, we have people who know us through YouTube. We have people who know us through our podcasts yeah. and all these. So we can we can tailor our thinking and our ideas and our storytelling to those all those places now you it's united by the voice of vanity fair well, this is, it's but not this, like those things are disparate in terms of their yeah, voice or their attitude sure. or maybe their worldview yeah but they can manifest differently according to the platform and that is very liberating well that's that's interesting this all happened under your watch i mean yes largely because that's, it just all happened. That's it, when it, coincidentally, well, the, the internet predated sure. me, surely. But yes, no, but um, but but it's interesting because. You but know, it's sort of been supercharged, right? But but you know the two things that seem to be happening in terms of your your time there is that the, the sort of the cultural decisiveness around inclusion mm -hmm. and 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 broadening the voices. You know, kind of also at the same time, technologically, there's there's this broadening of possibilities. Right. You know, and you kind of wrangled all that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking about it in advance of this conversation, and I've worked at magazines now for more than 20 years. 
bunch of different kinds of places. I worked at, I mentioned um, yeah, time. Time, time. I used to work at the Paris Review, which is a small literary magazine. Sure. Uh, I worked at Art Forum for a long time. You did? Mm-hmm. Um, were you, oh, so did, you were an uh, art critic kind of person? I was, no, I was an editor. Right. Uh, I started at, at Art Forum as a copy editor. And so I would read the magazine like eight times a month just copy editing it. So by the time I had done that for a year, I had a pretty firm grasp on the contemporary art scene. Yeah. <laughs> and they started giving me pieces to edit, which was super fun. So that's really where I learned to edit was at Art Forum, which is an interesting magazine because it's it's kind of a it's an industry magazine. And so there's a lot of writing in there that's quite academic and esoteric. Yeah, but then yeah. there's there's other there there are also just reviews and, I used to buy it to feel um, smart. <laughs> it's, I, I learned a lot of words when I was when <laughs> I was copy editing art form. I'm not going to lie, but anyway, I've worked at a, a bunch of different magazines, and there's something about this industry where it always happens where you, you get to the place, and somehow they're like, "Oh, it was better back in the old days." In the old days, at time, it was always like, "Oh, they used to have a bar cart." Yeah, yeah. You know, sure. the, oh, they you, they yeah. had you could do this and that, and it's like, okay, I I hear that. But one of the things I was thinking about is that in the old days of magazines, when they were just these very steady generators of revenue, you know, tons of ads, you look back at magazines in the 80s, and and the money was just pouring in. And, yeah. Well, there's a way in which they could become prisoners of their own success, because it was just print. The metrics were very simple, mm-hmm. and particularly in the realm of celebrity— People knew what the sales were, the newsstand sales and the subscription. And you knew that if you put this movie star on your cover, you were going to sell a lot of magazines. Mm. And so every year that movie star would appear again on the cover because why would you monkey with this formula that sold you a lot of magazines? And so there was something about the limited nature of the platform in addition to the reliability of the business that discouraged people from taking risks. There was no, okay, there was yeah. no upside to taking a risk. Right? Why? When you could just have the same, you know, you yeah. knew what this was. Whereas, <laughs> whereas today, there's a lot of upside to trying new things. Sure. Right. Exactly. Because yeah. you have a bunch of different platforms at your disposal, and also, you just never know what's going to happen. And it's like, not dictated. Just, it's not dictated. There's not like someone on high and right by ad sales either. Really? No. And and. And things land in really interesting ways in the culture now. And also, they're going to move through the culture differently. The whole concept of virality. Uh-huh. Uh, the idea, you know, when I was at Time, it was uh, my my editor always said, you have four seconds with a cover for people to kind of absorb it and get it on a newsstand. But, of course, we don't think about seeing magazine covers on newsstands anymore. We think about seeing them on our phones. Sure. And so what's that? spark of recognition like and how do people share those visuals and how well, you know it's interesting do for they me, interact you know it's not even covers it's you know because i get you know the apple news feed mm-hmm. it's the vanity fair logo right right it's which really is right. Just, which is has which has a different kind of power that's now, right for that reason so so i feel this sense of liberation about kind of how we deploy our voice and our logo our brand uh-huh. i hate that word but uh, you know yeah, the, sure and and it's it's quite it's very it's a different kind of cultural influence yeah. that I think is exciting. Yeah, and it's and it's evolving. Mm-hmm. 
It has to evolve. If it doesn't evolve, it's, it's... It, like, evolves daily. Yeah. I mean, it has to, like, you know, the... I would imagine not unlike, even though it's a monthly magazine, and you're thinking, you know, long and short and whatever, but, like, I would imagine that it's not unlike that Russian newspaper where, you know, every day it's just mm-hmm. sort of like, here we go. For sure. And, and in that same way, you never get it exactly right. You don't have a perfect day, so you have to keep. You have well, to. Well, the keep great thing about the internet is that you can just sort of like just fix it. <laughs> well, we try not to do that. <laughs> we try to get it exactly Good. right, but it's like teaching. I, yeah. I in my graduate program, I taught, and you can have a great day as a teacher, but you know you can still get better. Yeah, of course. You can connect in a different way. Yeah, and, and if you're, you're in... and you're just kept. You're kept animated by that possibility. Yeah, and also by the fact that, you know, if you're engaged and you have a, a, a curious mind, it, it's always going to be blown, mm-hmm. you know, almost daily now, mm-hmm. just by content. And one of the privileges of my position is that our audience is that way. Yeah. Like, our, we, have a, we have a sophisticated and curious right. audience. They yes. actually, they want to discover yeah. their game. Yeah. We have found this. That's great. Because I've taken risks. Yeah. And they've been welcomed. And that is really rewarding. Well, great. Good job. Nice talking to you. Nice talking to you, too. Thank you, Mark. There you go. Great conversation. Um, Radhika Jones. Vanity Fair's Hollywood issue for 2023 comes out in February. All right, hang out a minute, you guys. Hang out. Speaking of Vanity Fair, it was right before COVID hit in 2020 that I went to the Vanity Fair Oscar party. I met Ronan Farrow there, and he came on the show a few days later, and we talked about a lot, actually. You know, Woody Allen was my hero. Yeah, I get it. And, you know, and and it took a long time to integrate the reality of what this was about. For I'm for me as a guy who respected the guy. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely get it. And look, I come face to face with this a lot. Um, there, his fans. There's a there's a little niche of like Woody Allen super fans who literally just they live on the internet and they just haze my sister all day. They're just set. You know the the worst misogynistic slurs you well, can imagine. What does she not? I hope she doesn't engage with. That I shit. try to tell her to not look at that Why stuff. You can't look at that. I shit. know you can't. You're but, smart. You're smart not to. But it, it it is an interesting thing, and I see it in various fan bases. I see it mm-hmm. in the Michael Jackson fan base. There's almost a um like a flat earther uh, subset. I right. mean, when you really have uh, someone who you idolized and and tied to your own identity in a in a very specific way. I understand it can become really painful to acknowledge the the possibility right. that that person might be complicated well, that, and might have done bad things. And also that that borders on sort of a belief system trip, you know, like, you know, that you don't know that person really. And your belief in them or your relationship with them is completely uh, unreal. It's and totally got, abstract. It's abstract, but like the human heart and mind needs to feel part of these people. They 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 deify them. It, it is exactly the same instinct that leads us to religion. Sure, and right. and I get it. I'm sympathetic to it. But look, I'm actually but, yeah. A, but these are human people. They're human people, and mm-hmm. and I I think that I'm actually a great example of those tensions because look, I I more than any super fan would love 
to not buy <laughs> my sister's allegations and have a much simpler relationship with this part of my history. Yeah. Um, and, you know, tried to, to shrug it off for, for years. And, you did? Yeah. And, and that... How so? Uh, didn't want to... Never talked about it publicly. Uh, but, I mean, with her. Tried to, tried to kind of reduce it to... I could joke here and there about he married my other sister, but, like, not really touch the, the more serious So was it because you had not you know, connected with your empathy for your sister or? It was because it was easier to look the other way. And therefore I get the fans looking the other way. That's episode 1098 with Ronan Farrow. And it's available right now for free to get all WTF episodes ad free. Sign up for WTF plus by going to the link in the episode description or clicking on the WTF plus link at WTFpod.com. On Thursday, I talked to Dave Franco about the new film he directed and wrote with his wife, Alison Brie. My co-star, Alison Brie. Guitar time. Stratocaster time. Monkey, LaFonda, yeah, cat angels everywhere, man.